So I am in the midst of a kind of crazy few weeks. For last week, this coming week, and the week after, I'm traveling, which I don't do very much, for uh, pretty significant amounts of time. This past week, I was out of town for almost the whole week. I was in Atlanta for a board of trustees meeting uh, for the seminary, Columbia Theological Seminary, where I studied, where Beth and I uh, both went. And uh, it was great to be there, even though it's, you know, it's hard to be away, it's hard to travel. Um, you come back and there's 820,000 emails. I have gotten your email. I'm sure it's there. I had three people ask me, today, did you get my email? I just haven't gotten to it yet. But it, it's coming. It's the danger of going out of town um, when you don't have much access. But in the midst of all of the meetings this week, I um, got to go and see our old church in Atlanta, uh, the church that we founded uh, in our living room. If you don't know, we started a church in Atlanta. We're there for eight years. Started it. It grew. It flourished. And we worked really, really hard for the succession plan after that. Uh, the guy that's now the pastor there is a young guy named Drew Ditzel. Drew was a part of our church from the very beginning, and who worked on our staff. If you know anything about Presbyterian polity, you'll know the backflips we had to do in order to have him as the successor. He is doing wonderfully well there. Uh, the church is continuing to flourish uh, and do great things. And I got to go, and after two plus years of being gone, uh, just go sit down with him and have lunch. We felt like it was enough time to... Uh, to just uh, get together. And I got to go on a tour of their new building. They've moved, this is their fourth location in 10 years. They've needed more and more room. Uh, I got to walk through this new building and I felt like a grandparent. Do you know what I mean? I felt like the best parts of being a grandparent where you could be excited about what was happening and proud about what was happening. But as soon as he started getting into some of the dysfunctional stuff, I could just sort of send it back to him, right? It's like, yeah, I don't have to deal with that anymore. That's, that's now your problem. So we send the grandkids back and we just get to enjoy giving them ice cream and sending them on their way. So it was, it was a wonderful time there together. And one of the things that we talked about in terms of just issues that come up was the most controversial thing that happened in our time at Kairos. And that was the question about whether to have members of our church or not. In eight years, that was like the most controversial thing of what we do. Now, some things you think this is going to be controversial and you know it's coming. Some things in a church or in any organization, you're like, really? This is what we're going to get all worked up about? But we got really worked up about membership. Now, the way this worked was we were meeting with our session. Uh, we called them our leadership team. And our session, and we had like four items on the agenda. And the way you structure it is you take like the no-brainers and you put them first to kind of knock them out of the way, knowing that that leaves room for kind of the meaty or more controversial things at the end. And this question about having church membership was like number one. It was like the no-brainer of all time, right? We're a church. You've got to have members. We've got to have a class. That's what you do. And so I just sort of said, hey... I want to make people aware of this. I'll be willing to, to kind of form and to teach a lot of the parts of this new members class, but we just need an action of this, of this leadership group to do it. So could I get a motion for that to happen? And like nobody spoke. And I'm like, I know it's not a big deal, but we still got to do it if somebody could just make a motion. And finally this person goes, we're, we're never doing that. And I said, what do you, what do you mean never doing, never doing what? They're like we're never having members of a church. I was like, no, no, we're, we're a church. I don't know if you know, like, we're a church. Like, you have to have members. It's in the Bible somewhere. That you've, got, you've got to have members of a church. And it's like, no, we're never doing that. Now, quick, very quickly, uh, why do you think a new church in Atlanta, if you just had to guess, why would they not want membership? Why do you think? Anybody? Hmm? Obligation? No, kind of that sense of obligation. Yeah, if that's going to be too constricting. 
Anything else? Change. change. Yeah, just change in general. We're going to do something new. Yeah. Exclusivity. Exclusivity. That actually was part of it. Yeah. A label. Yes, there's kind of a label. We're in this camp versus that camp. All of that played a part in it. But when I ask the question, because I'm a really gifted leader, and so when people start like, like standing up against certain things you don't see coming, I'm like, okay, why is this a problem? That was my leadership at the time. I was like, what, what is going on? Why, why are you all so angry about this? What one person in the group said was, we've been talking here at Kairos about really committing to each other, doing life together. My parents are members of a church. They say it's a 2,000 member church, but whenever I go there, you could shoot a cannon off in the sanctuary and not hit anybody. My parents go at Easter and Christmas, but as long as they send a check every year to the budget, they stay members of the church. He said, you wanna talk about commitment like we've been talking about? Let's talk about commitment. You wanna talk about membership? That is a toothless institutional term that pastors use to brag to each other about how many people are on their roles. What was nice in that was not only did we not pass the agenda, but there was a personal cut down towards me uh, in all of that, of what, of what we're gonna do as a pastor. And then he turned the question back to me. He said, so tell me why we should do membership. And my best answer was, because we're a church and that's what you've gotta do. Which as I'm saying it, at the time, you're going, that's a really bad answer. That's a terrible answer for why you should, because that's what we do. But we do that all the time. Churches do that all the time. Individuals do that all the time. We just sort of go on autopilot with so much going on in our lives, and this is just what we do, and this is just kind of how we function. And it's one of the most dangerous things that happens to us. It's dangerous in our relationships. It's dangerous in our marriages. It's dangerous with our kids. It's dangerous in our, in our spiritual life. We just sort of go on autopilot. This is just kind of what we do. Right? It's just what our company does. It's just kind of how we've always done it. And they turned the question back on me, and I realized I didn't have an answer. And so that started me on a journey of months and months and months of actually looking into why do churches have membership? Why do we call it that? And what turns out, it's pretty different than what I thought. Being a member of a church is not an institutional word. It's not about being a member of this organization. It's not like being a member of a country club or a, a, a member of the Rotary Club. Not that there's anything wrong with those. But rather, this idea of membership is a biblical term coming from Paul's letter to the Corinthians when he's talking about how we are members of the body of Christ. And what he's talking about in there is that we cannot grow fully spiritually, become spiritual alive when we just kind of do spirituality on our own. It's one of the tragedies in American culture today is it's so individualistic. And so there's this sense among people like, hey, it's my faith and it's my idea of truth and it's my idea of what's right. And what the scriptures say about that is that means there is a ceiling on any kind of spiritual experience you can have. Because spiritual life and growth happens in community. It happens in relationship with each other. And so if we don't have ways of understanding this commitment as members of the body, then we just sort of skim along the surface and we never go deep. But it's not an institutional term. It's not that we're members of one church versus another, right? Because that starts seeing other congregations as our competition. Austin Stone is not our competition. EV Free is not our competition. Terrytown Methodist is not our competition. First Pres here in, in Austin is not our competition. They are proclaiming the gospel. We're on the same team, doing the same work. But each of those congregations is unique. 
There's unique ways of doing things. And the question of membership is, what's the unique community where you will grow in your spiritual life? Not what organization am I a part of? And so what we did is we kind of started teaching that to the people of Kairos. We started saying, hey, I didn't know this, but it turns out there's a really good reason for this membership thing. There's a really cool understanding of how it's committing to grow in community with other people so that we can have depth. And we think that's a really great thing. And what happened was a year later, after doing all this work, the session unanimously adopted it. Not because we created a rule. And I probably could have, as the founding pastor, pounded that one in and just said, guys, we got to do this. I'm telling you, we got to do it. And, and they probably would have just gone, okay, fine. We don't like it. It's not a big deal, but we'll go ahead and do it. But what we did was we taught the why. We taught the why. We stopped and took the time to actually go, why is this important? Why is this so critical? And that process is one of the most important things you can do. So one of the most important things you can do in your life is to stop and ponder the why and to teach the why. Why do you believe the things you do? Because just like in the scriptures, we live in a time when people believe all kinds of things and assert all kinds of things. There's lots. If you, all you got to do is go on social media. Everybody's got an opinion about everything and thinks they deserve to be heard. One of the lost arts, I believe, is explaining why. Not just asserting an opinion and seeing who agrees with you who doesn't, but why do we believe what we believe? What does it mean to be the kind of people who teach the why? Who ponder the why? Who ask why to each other so that we can have depth? We're in a teaching series where we're looking at the book of Philemon. And this is a book where Paul is making a case for community to be different. The reason God gives us community is to change us, not just to reinforce what we already think. It's in community, in relationship that we grow as people. We grow and change and are transformed. And Paul is outlining what community looks like in this letter to Philemon. And I want you to listen now to the second third of this book. We're reading this in three sections. And I want you to listen how Paul teaches the why here and what he does as he makes an argument to, to uh, Philemon, starting in verse 8. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I be have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to what you want to say to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul has one of two routes to go here. And you remember from last week, what he's doing in this letter is he is in a dialogue with Philemon about the issue of slavery. What we know in this book is that, number one, there is our three characters. The first is Paul, 
who writes this letter, who uh, has converted Philemon. Philemon has come to faith in Jesus under Paul's ministry in the city of Colossae. Paul has moved on to a new city and is writing a letter back to Philemon. Philemon's the second character in the story. And Philemon is the one the letter's addressed to. And what we know about him is that he is a wealthy Christian. We know this because he hosts the church of Colossae in his home. His house is big enough to have a small congregation there. And he also owns a slave, which sounds strange to us today as followers of Jesus, thankfully. That sounds odd that he was a Christian slave owner. But at the time, slave owning was very normal for people of means. And Philemon, as a new Christian, probably didn't see any discrepancy between being a slave owner and a follower of Jesus. Last, the third character is this runaway slave, Onesimus. And it's Onesimus that Paul is writing about. Paul is writing and sends the letter back with Onesimus to Philemon, arguing that Philemon needs to free Onesimus. Now, there's two ways that Paul could have done this. One is he could have taken his power as the founder of this church, as a leader of the New Testament church, and said, Philemon, you can't do this. It's wrong. There's rules against this stuff. You need to free all your slaves. And who knows, probably Philemon would have listened. He would have been like, okay, well, I guess I'm not allowed to do this. There's rules about slave owning, and so I'll kind of follow this rule. But rules don't change people's hearts. Do, rules don't change people's lives. And Paul, in his love for Philemon, isn't just giving him a rule to check a box. And what he does is he actually cares about Philemon's formation he cares about what Philemon's mind and heart is. He wants Philemon to understand why. Because understanding why is how patterns and behaviors and thoughts change. So Paul doesn't just say, Philemon, you have to free the slave. It's not nice to do. Rather, what he says is, I want to teach you the why and let you choose what to do. It's a very different way of convincing someone of what you believe. Teaching the why and letting them choose. And the why for Paul, and it would still be just a completely revolutionary thing for us today in our culture, is that what he says is, is that I want to appeal to you on the basis of love. And what he doesn't mean is Philemon's love. Like we might make an argument about slavery and say, oh, that's such a bad thing, and you're a really good person, and that's, you know, that's bad for the person who's a slave. You shouldn't do that. It's not, it's not the way to be. Those kind of sentiments are good, but they don't change the world right? There are all kinds of things that you and I engage in. There are products that we buy, things that we do that are created under difficult circumstances. I was just reading this week about how certain kinds of chocolate that are quite popular worldwide are grown by child laborers. Now, we can sit there and go, oh, no, 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 we want to be really, really nice, but the fact is my kids like Easter bunnies, chocolate bunnies, and so does that impact my buying patterns, just being really nice? Oh, no, you want to be loving, well, no, I believe that, but that doesn't often just change behaviors either, just like a rule. Paul says, no, Philemon, listen. The why is something so much more powerful. The why is not based on your love. He's not arguing based on Philemon's love. The love he talks about here is the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus that is personified and perfected in the cross. The cross, which we celebrated Easter just a few weeks ago. And what the cross means in this case, and, and listen to this because it's so amazing. What the cross means is that we are all equally in need of forgiveness. When God looks at us, God doesn't sit there and go, oh, you know, you really need it. You kind of need it. You may not need it this week. What God looks at us and says is every single day, 
we do what we know is wrong and we fail to do what we know is right. I wish I wasn't as self-centered as a person as I am. I know the rules about that. I just don't change very often, right? And so what he's saying is, is that the reason we have a prayer of confession, for instance, in worship, is not just because that's the rules, right? Well, the covenant, we're in the Presbyterian church, and you've got to have a prayer of confession. No! Why do we do it? We do it because we're broken people. All of us, no matter what our job title is, no matter what, what ethnicity we are, no matter what gender we are, no matter what zip code we live in, we are broken people in need of grace, in need of forgiveness. And what he's arguing here is that, is that it's based on love that, that structures change. He's saying that, number one, we are equally in need of forgiveness, and through the cross, we are equally forgiven. We are all equally forgiven. And therefore, the, the hierarchies that exist of slave owner and slave are no longer valid because in Jesus, we are equally forgiven people. It's not just, hey, be a really good, loving person and don't have a slave. It's far deeper and more powerful than that. He is eradicating the entire existence of these social hierarchies that form our so many parts of our culture. He's saying to Philemon, this slave is now my brother. This slave in Christ is now your brother. You all are equals, so you decide what you're going to do. But I'll tell you something, friends. It's pretty hard to own a slave if you see them as your brother, isn't it? Is he creating a rule about slavery? No. He's teaching the why. He's teaching why this is uh, 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 such an important cause for Paul. And teaching the why is where we change. It changes how we live today. You're going to hear in the announcements that out on the table, there are, uh, there's a table today run by International Justice Mission, an organization we're in partnership because slavery in this country and slavery around the world is alive still today. And just like Paul's call to Philemon, we must stand against that. Not because we're really good people and we're supposed to do really nice things, but for the same love that Paul is crying out to Philemon about, we must be about that as well. That we must look and say that, that slavery or, or child labor or human trafficking, that these are systems built upon hierarchies of power, hierarchies of dynamics, and that we must proclaim as Christians that is abhorrent to the cross, not just not nice. It's deeper than that. The why is deeper. And it also allows us to then apply those values to different things. It allows Philemon not just to learn a rule, but to actually go, wow, if, the, if societal structures and hierarchies come tumbling down, man, that has a lot bigger implications than just slavery. That starts changing the way I look at people. It starts changing the way you and I should live today. One of the things that I believe that it changes about our world is something that, that, that we need to get our hands around, which is the fact that in this country... There is a difference in paying men and women to do the same job. And that is abhorrent to the idea of the cross. Because that system is built upon something that if we look at it and say, through the cross, these systems are eradicated, then we must be treating each other as equals. And so it's not just that Paul's teaching a rule about slavery. He's teaching a value. He's teaching the why so that you and I can have our hearts changed and go, wow, that affects here and that affects here and that affects here and that affects here. You start seeing the implications of it all over. He doesn't teach a rule. He doesn't command it. He teaches the why and then invites Philemon to choose. It empowers Philemon to actually have his heart and mind changed. Now, that may sound idealistic. 
But I would argue that there are examples in our world today where we need this kind of living and where we see it making a difference. And I want to give you one quick example as we close. One of the difficult statistics that I've read recently is about how common cheating has become in school. It's not necessarily surprising to me, but it was disheartening to read. Recent study that came out of Stanford that I read this week said that between 75 and 90% of current college students admitted to cheating in high school. Now where I went to high school, and this was not yesterday, but where I went to high school, private school, suburban Atlanta, everybody I knew cheated. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, that person cheats. It's like, everybody did. I mean, I was aware of it. Everyone was aware of it. The statistics feel real to me. And the pressures of that are real, right? Because when you apply to Harvard, if you're in the bottom half of your class, you can't write on the essay, hey, by the way, all those people cheated, and so I didn't, and that's why I'm in the 60th percentile of our class. You know what they give you? Good job, denial. That pressure's real. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying the pressure is there. That's why they do it. Where I went to undergraduate, Davidson College, they tackled this issue in a completely different way. Because what they realized is that this huge majority that is cheating in school, it's not because there's no rules about it. Every high school I know has rules about cheating. Every teacher is monitoring for it. It doesn't change behavior. It doesn't change hearts. It's just rules. So Davidson talked about this in a different way. What they said is, is that much of our freshman orientation was devoted to what would it mean if we were the kind of community where people could be trusted in all kinds of ways? What would it mean if we had professors that just trusted you to do the right thing? Wouldn't that feel amazing? And you're like, yeah, that feels amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing, they said, if we were the kind of place that every time you left your dorm room, you didn't need to lock the door because you just knew that we were the kind of community that no one would ever think of breaking in and stealing something. You're like, yeah, I mean, it sounds like Disney World. I don't think that's real, but yeah, that would be great. So wouldn't it be the kind of place, great, if we were the kind of place where security wasn't in every corner to make sure that nothing happened, but we trusted each other with the ways that we conduct and care for each other. Wouldn't that be amazing? We're like, yes, it would be amazing. They said, then we need this honor code to, per to, to permeate every aspect of life. Now, I don't want to put Davidson on a pedestal and say that no one ever cheated there. Okay, I'm sure that it happens and happened. But here's what I also can tell you. There were all kinds of rules about cheating in my high school and everybody did it. And nobody turned anyone in for it. I don't know anyone that cheated in my four years at Davidson. Anyone. And I would have turned them in, as I would have expected them to do. Not because we had rules to follow, but because we were experiencing life in a wonderful kind of community where we trusted each other, and I didn't want anyone to mess with that. Because here's the thing. We went and took exams anywhere on campus we wanted to. We didn't take final exams in a room with a professor going, you're, you're cheating. They said, we trust you. We're going to trust you to choose. We're going to teach you the value. We're going to teach you the why. We're going to trust you to choose. You can go take it in your dorm room. You can go take it in your fraternity house. I did that one time as a senior. I don't recommend it. Didn't score the best grade of my life. But you can go take it anywhere you want to. I never once in my four years of Davidson ever locked my dorm room when I wasn't there. Never occurred to me to. And nothing ever happened. They taught the why. They gave you a vision of the why. They bought you in on the why. And then they said, then, then, so this is what we got to do. You got to choose to do it. 
Maybe that's how patterns are changed. Maybe that's how behaviors are changed. Maybe Paul is pointing us to something here. This week, this week, you are going to have all kinds of opportunities to express what you believe through what you buy, through what you vote, through the ways you speak, through the ways you parent your children. You're going to have all kinds of ways to assert. This week, I invite you to ponder the why. Why do you believe what you do? Why do you do the things you do? Where are the autopilot places in your life where this is just what we do? Because you might find some things that you hold dear. You might be like I was with Kairos when they talked about membership, where it's like they asked why, and you realize, I don't know, this is just what we do. It might shape and form you of what you actually believe. And I invite you also to be a teacher of the why. Teach why you believe what you do. In all the different times, places, take the time, not just to run through the rules, although that's faster. But for us to be the kind of community where we shape and form and are formed and teach and learn, that happens when we teach the why. May we be this kind of community where we grow and change through our pursuit of truth together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this week that you would teach us about who we are and why we are. We ask that you would lead and guide us as we form this kind of community that seeks the why, that teaches the why, and that seeks to know your truth that lies within it all. We pray for your leading and guiding in Jesus' name. Amen.